I had the pleasure of speaking with Riley Quinn, the host of the Kami Book Club and one of the hosts of the Trash Future podcast based out of the UK. Riley uh, has a very rich academic background in philosophy, and he's also been featured in numerous publications for his writings on politics and the current situation with Brexit. But a lot of what we discuss um, can be boiled down to two figures. The first would be Theodore Adorno, the great uh, philosopher of the Frankfurt School, who believed essentially that those born into capitalism uh, do so with invisible chains of bondage, that the culture we live in uh, perpetuates a reality that leaves us unable to see the exploitation and systems of domination that go into controlling us. And in many ways, I think it's fair to say he did not believe that the masses um, could bring about uh, revolutionary change. Um, and so throughout his writing, he has both a suspicion and oftentimes disdain for culture that the masses enjoy, that the many enjoy, because he believed that was a form of self-domination. The other figure who we touch upon who brings this sort of dialectics into focus is Mark Fisher, the late British cultural critic. And Fisher, I think it's fair to say, was much more optimistic than Adorno, even though he respected his work. Um, Fisher spent a lot of his life looking throughout mass culture, throughout subculture, through various genres uh, all over the world uh, for threads of revolution. He believed um, that there was much more faith that could be placed in the people, and that if you could tease out or bring into attention some of the themes, some of the ideas of pop culture, of various uh, musicians, of various movies, that you could indeed tell a revolutionary story, and that the, the seeds of revolution are there, it's just a matter of figuring out how to gather enough of them to grow a garden, to grow revolutionary change. If you like what we're doing, uh, feel free to support us. Um, you can follow us on asiaarttours.com. We're happy to give you a really interesting trip um, with philosophers, academics, and artists here in Asia. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and we'll have links to uh, the various articles Riley's written, along with some of the uh, other people we mention in the show, um, in our show description. All right. Here's my chat with Riley Quinn. Europe, uh, well, if depending on how we define Europe, uh, I moved to the UK in 2011 to go to university. I studied at London School of Economics, took a couple of years off, then I studied again at Oxford, and then I uh, moved back to London, uh, where I now do various things, including host the Trash Future podcast with my friends, which essentially amounts to talking shit about venture capitalists and the companies that they create, amongst other things, including uh, <laughs> columnists. We love to talk <laughs> about columnists. I guess, so I guess you, to, saying how I came to be on here is that once a month, uh, rather than doing the usual, um, you know, com tomfoolery of a Trash Future uh, podcast episode, I do uh, the Commie Book Club, which is me talking about a book for about an hour or so by myself which is, this might surprise you, difficult. And I guess just on a, on a personal level, has being an expat been a real um, gift to you in terms of your ability to analyze some of what you see in Britain, some of the, the stupidity or 
selfishness of politics, some of these larger questions that you explore on both Trash Future and Comedy Book Club. Or Commie, Commie Book Club. I said comedy. My apologies. I, get my, I think my situation's... So I don't, I'm not going to say it's, it's, it's sweet generous because it's certainly not. I mean, a lot of people do exactly what I did. But having spent more, having actually spent my entire adult life in this country, um, I, I really wasn't, I, was, I wasn't leaving Canada sort of really feeling politically one way or another. Um, I'd say I moved to the left over here. So there was, so I, I, I sort of am barely aware of of Canadian politics. In fact, when I, I, I when I go back to visit my family, which is relatively infrequently, um, they're like, oh, you you seem to have developed a politics all of a sudden, uh, all of yeah. a sudden, meaning, you know, almost a decade ago. But nonetheless, it, it was it was it was a transformation, I guess, because the transformation of, of, of going from Canada to the UK uh, sort of predated more or less me actually becoming an adult. So in that sense, I'd say that the differing levels of insight, I think that might be more relevant to someone who would have left their home country, like in their mid twenties, for example, you know, having mm -hmm. already become a more fully formed person. In in this case, I mean, it's one of the other things is that most of the people I know in Britain, like I met, either at the London School of Economics or Oxford. So a, a lot of the people I know in, in Britain are sort of shaped by a lot of the same sort of like private school systems. We, here we call it public school, um, which is private school systems, where they are, um, a lot of them do come from that cosseted background. So that, that whole culture shock thing is less sort of operative um, than the sort of ordinary self-censorship that someone who went to a series of fancy schools and then sort of became radicalized to the left would have over here, if that makes any sense. The only thing I can relate to that is, so when I was young, I moved to Cambridge deliberately because I thought at the time, I was maybe 26, so it's, I was old enough for this to be embarrassing. I moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts because I thought like, these are the smartest people in the world. I want to be around them and, you know, learn and they're going to be the future. And, I, you know, you would go on dates with them or, you know, you know, uh, play ultimate frisbee or basketball. And you would just realize uh, that oftentimes they were just not very uh, nice people or not particularly intelligent outside of uh, very specific genres or sort of like as people like... Um, as Shamus Khan has sort of written, that they're sort of these um, tropes that you're taught, things that you should do and shouldn't do, ways that you should and shouldn't talk, books that, you know, you're given to read, but you don't really come to understand on a deeper level. Um, is Was it really shocking for you of being exposed to like Oxford and the background of these cosseted people and sort of seeing that for the first time? Did you have any exposure to that prior? I guess the thing is, I've, I've sometimes been accused of being a champagne socialist. Um, I, but I found it sort of not, not particularly shocking. Um, in fact, I guess if we're going to go sort of all confessional mode, um, my larger culture shock was as I became for and more working with the left, was leaving that group of sort of privately educated um, like Oxbridge and so on people uh, behind is sort of just the people who I knew, if you know what I mean, and actually meeting and becoming friends with people who like didn't go to university, who chose to become a trade unionist, et cetera, et cetera. That for me was the culture shock. Um, and I found that, uh, well, number one, it's a lot less unbearable to hang out with people who aren't sort of always trying to, you know, slip some some reference to a Latin poet or whatever in uh, into conversation. Um, because like that's just the the relentless insecurity of the of fancy um, British people is they are constantly needing to prove that they have an effortless knowledge of more or less everything. Um, it's very exhausting. Um, but but that the um, yeah, they said the transformation sort of came later. So I was, it was sort of what I had known all the way up to sort of leaving, um, leaving that final degree. 
and then you know going into a, a, a world of real things and real people in that former world that you uh inhabited in sort of uh, this oxbridge uh london school of economics uh oxford world is there a real fear sort of 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 ignorance or of saying the wrong thing and and was that something that you were sort of is there a lot of peer pressure that one's exposed to when that when they're in that environment of of sort of conforming and of of inhabiting the part of intelligence this is the interesting thing it's like so number one um I think that there is not so much peer pressure as self-imposed pressure, um, because the whole, the whole, uh, the whole thing is is about sort of communicating a sense of of of, of not just effort of effortless knowledge um, and an effortless mastery of more or less everything you touch. Uh, and specifically to be also performing how much you're not trying it. Um, and I think that actually sort of plays into a lot of how uh, the British British politics ends up working because it's all of these people who go on to like, you know, be the architects of the Iraq war because what what you get is the transformation of, um, you know, you're sitting around the, round the table as a, you know, PPE, a sort of politics, philosophy, economics student, but you know you you're able to explain uh, math to the math student or whatever. That level of confidence and your ability from basically just being really good at school then transforms into your ability to more or less blag anything. Um, and so you know Tony Blair sends the sends us to war in Iraq because he just assumes that he and his friends are kind of so technically gifted that they'll be able to just sort of figure it out because the, all of like uh, of a certain class all of british society until you're 18 is centered around getting into oxbridge if you don't get into oxbridge and you spend the rest of your life compensating for the fact that you didn't go trying to show that you're still special and if you did yeah. go then that's everything you've ever wanted you've now achieved and you're now special for the rest of your life and so what the what you end up with is you end up with government by people who believe that their personal excellence is so unquestionable, again, on the basis of being good at homework, um, that they they can solve any problem by wit by wit of their own well, wit and charm, essentially. I don't know what it is in the water over there, or if the beer is just a lot better, but I mean, I find the podcast and a lot of the academic writing coming out of the UK to be really much more interesting than what's going on in the States. Um, so Death Sentence is a podcast I really like. And um, something that they talked about recently was um, uh, sort of Bhaskar Sankara's book and sort of this tension, which I'm not going to criticize anyone in particular. They just noted this tension in the book where they felt at times that it was the substitution of sort of one uh hegemony for another, sort of this, that to enact something like socialism or socialist reforms, the most important thing is having a very sort of top-down academic, that it should be the brainiacs leading it. Uh, and I'm wondering, just as someone who comes from a prestigious academic background, who's been accused of enjoying fine wines while you read your <laughs> marks, are we just replacing the know-it-alls with more left-wing know-it-alls? I mean, yeah, if I think if the if we're not thinking about that, then we should be. Um, I I try to think about it as much as possible. Um, you know, I, it's, I mean, one of the one of the things I sort of all, always think about the way that socialist campaigning has to work is that you have to meet people where they're at. So, you know, you're never you're never going to like good look. If we're looking to do socialism democratically, then that means you have to get people to vote for us. And the whole point of um, the whole point of, uh, of, of sort of taking power in a democracy is you basically organize the largest group of people you can to go vote for you. You know, fascists organize the working class around their like um, identity around sort of elements of an identity, like a racial identity or a national identity. Whereas as socialists, we're trying to organize the working class around um, their just economic self-interest, and so. The point the point is 
you know, if you're just replacing a bunch, a bunch of know-it-all brainiacs with another bunch of know-it-all brainiacs, then you're fighting an uphill battle trying to tell someone what should be the easiest thing of all to tell them. You know, you don't get enough money. You deserve more. You know, that's you. You work a lot to make this society like decent. And yet, you know, there's some other guy who's living in a gold house because of what you do. I mean, I think there's a temptation um, to either want to explain that, you know, the, the, the maths behind the internal contradictions of capitalism or to want to like go full Altazer and like and, and, and speak and write in a way that's kind of completely impenetrable. Both of these are very tempting because they're both for people who are like for people who have spent their entire lives being congratulated for working in that way. It's very satisfying. And if, if for some people, you know, myself included, it's kind of fun. But it's also like that's basically not organizing so much as it is a, like it's kind of wanking, isn't it? It's a bit of a wank. Um, so you have to do the thing that is just a bit more, I don't want to say simple, but I do want to say more direct because like if there's someone who's working for, you know, 10, 12 hours a day in a call center or whatever, they're not going home and reading Adorno. And the fact is, why should they like, you know, it's not one of their interests. Like, that's fine. It's like, we're not trying to create, a, a, we're not trying to bring about socialism to make people more interesting at dinner party conversations. We're just trying to do it because we think that people will basically have a better life. So if you're trying to be the know-it-all brainiac replacing another know-it-all brainiac, then you're doing is you're shooting yourself in the foot for your actual political campaign. So the question becomes, are you interested in showing everyone how clever you are, which is, are you still the Oxbridge type of person whose whole life is spent sitting around dinner tables trying to outclass someone in their own subject that you don't even do? Or are you just trying to bring about political change so people don't keep like dying? Do you know the story of Chris Hedges at the New York Times? You know, he's like this uh, autodidact sort of genius. He was like a working class kid who gets into Harvard, goes to their divinity school, at the same time learns like three languages. I think he learned Greek, Latin, and Arabic. Rises his way up to the top of the New York Times, becomes their Middle East bureau chief in Jerusalem. But it's this very powerful post in the Times, and this is in two, right uh, of the onset uh, before the Iraq War had been sort of finalized. And he starts speaking out against the Iraq War, and he gets a reprimand from the Times saying, like, you, you can't do this. And he just keeps doing it, keeps doing it, and then they fire him. And he's basically been blacklisted from, like, all uh, major outlets now. He writes for Truth Dig, which is small. You know, he's on RT because, again, he can't get on TV. Um, he's blacklisted, basically, because I'm assuming probably the Times does not want someone who knows all their inner workings and skeletons running around media. And, you know, likewise, there's all these weird parasitic relations in media. That, that's a long way of saying I like these people who are willing to get sort of blacklisted. And I'm wondering for what you're doing with Trash Future, what, you're, what you've been doing as a writer and a thinker, and how you see the left getting more and more power slowly but surely in media. Is it something where you keep that in your mind, where you are have to remind yourself or, or sort of work up the courage to sometimes say things that would maybe get you banned from some of these platforms or are counter to the sort of hegemonic narrative that people sometimes try to push uh, on the left. Okay, so the person who is probably the most left at The Guardian, who gets the most stick for being most left at The Guardian is Owen Jones. And yet he he would sort of he I, he doesn't sort of censor himself he doesn't um he doesn't do any anything like this he would were we to go to you know war in iran tomorrow and the guardian says oh we must support it for you know democracy or whatever shit you know he yeah. would still be writing against it and i don't think he would get blacklisted i think the nature of media has now changed that be, that because people have much more direct and personal relationships with journalists that the spectacle is no longer going one way. You know, if you think of Gita Bord, this this don't talk of this of the spectacle that, you know, all of these things you think are um, 
it might be politically significant or all these things you might think are apolitical or whatever are really part of this one big spectacle. You know, the Iraq war is the same as the Nike swoosh is the same as the, you know, um, the uh, Supreme is the same as every movie, et cetera, et cetera. It's all just this bewildering spectacle. Um, right. The difference is now we're all participating in it. So they're, they don't, it doesn't really matter what's being shown so much as that every, everyone's just involved. So I, I think that really is the, the, the fear of being blacklisted for doing something like that is a 1990s or 2000, early 2000s fear. I think we've moved on to something else. Um, I think now it's much more about personal resentments and personal relationships. <laughs> I think now because all of the because the the line between I'm expressing my personal my my I'm expressing my say political opinion through an article and you you have um, undermined my personal trust in you, et cetera. There's no longer a line there. It's now just, it's all blended into one undifferentiated mass. So, you know, this is why, you know, Owen's not getting fired from the guardian because people emotionally engage with him and therefore they emotionally engage with the guardian. Therefore they've got an emotional relationship with the guardian. Now, Owen being at the guardian is also valuable for the left because it basically means that there is a mainstream response to stuff going on He's basically a good thing. But also, I think that a lot of people see him probably not as posing a threat because they're like, well, politics just is is what it is. And we get those left wing clicks. So we'll we'll have, you know, Nick Cohen or whatever, say that they uh, they denounce him or whatever, and then they'll get the right wing clicks. But they keep getting the clicks. Mm -hmm. But you're saying clicks, not K-L-I-Q-U-E-S. Yes, I, I'm, I'm saying C-L-I-C-K-S in terms of and that. And so now really... Because 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 controversy is just so um, uh, 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 popular that it's it's now just I think a lot of these media blacklists and so on are just sort of um, undifferentiated masses of personal personal resentments and personal mm -hmm. affiliations and people and everyone everyone brand building you know it's it's it, it's all sometimes in my more cynical moments I sometimes think that. Uh, most media, even left media, is um, just the the YouTuber, the the beauty YouTubers um, falling out, but you know, with a political theme. But that's at my in my moments of despair. It's weird, like you you. I work in the art world, and you definitely meet people whose uh, creative output is not based on sort of wanting to engage with ideas. It's more about are you famous? So what I what I mean by that is it's very interesting that certain people who uh, are on the left, a random dude like myself, and I have a cool little website, but I'm still random, can, you know, get in touch with you. Whereas um, I'm reminded constantly of, of the great uh, John Holloway, where he says there's like two kinds of power. There's power to and power over. And going back to saying, you know, originally why I view your program as sort of more empathetic and interesting is it feels very clear, even though at times, you know, you are wrestling with these very highbrow academic concepts that you are striving to for power too. You don't want to have power over people. And I don't feel that way over for a lot of the American left uh, that I inter see, you know, in terms of uh, social presence and profiles and podcasts. Um, do, does that um, analogy make sense to you? And, and is that sort of attention that um, people talk about openly in, in the secret meetings of cool podcasters? <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, every time, every time, like we, we get together with like the Novara people and Grace Blakely and Owen, we like, we sit down and we hash out exactly like, what, what we're going to say and who we're going to how we're going to take power tomorrow power over but no 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 um in, in all seriousness uh, i think this is not necessarily something i've thought about directly but it is something that you know does make a lot of sense to me um that i think largely you know the this may sound incredibly stupid and it probably will because it is um uh, but i largely do the podcast because I want, I, I just feel I have to express something rather than because I necessarily sort of want to, you know, be a, be a big, big time left guy. 
and and just and and do all that. No, I I have a thing to express and I express it. And even Comedy Book Club started just because we had a gap in recording and only the and the other guys weren't available. So I was like, well, fuck it. I'll talk about a book, I guess. I'll do a solo episode where I talk about the book Psychopolitics by Byung Chul Han, which I only bought because Verso was having a 50% off sale. I felt like buying some books. Had that not happened, I wouldn't have had any appropriate books to talk about. I think one of the reasons it, maybe it 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 sort of fits with this power to rather than power over thing is that the whole podcast itself and the book club segment in particular all arose more or less by accident. The great Terrence Ray of True Billies talked about like this sort of stress he feels of sometimes that he's like take mining, where like once you create this medium, there's these, these dual tensions of one, you have to become your brand. So you have to, if I'm... Riley, the sort of witty, acerbic person on Trash Future, that's who I have to be all the time. And then I think the other part of of what he was mentioning of sort of this take mining is like, look, you know, at, at the, we're probably nearing an inflection point where everyone knows these people are full of shit, where we're, there's a law of diminishing returns of like continuing to shit on Blair or the what is the, the cock party? I don't know what they're called in the UK. The it's great. They're um they they are they are a party that is the eternal Elmer Fudd, uh, constantly yeah. getting fucked with by the Bugs Bunny of reality. It's yeah. great. To book on that point, like that, there's a law of diminishing returns of like something that certain American podcasts do, where they're just like these people are stupid. It's like you've been telling us that for you know four years or three years. We know that. Same with, you know, I think you can make that criticism of someone like Nader or even at times Chomsky, that these we know these things. And I'm wondering, because you've set up and invested a lot of time with, uh, with uh, Trash Future, do you ever feel some of these issues and, and have you been able to resolve them? Well, I think that like with a with podcasting like this, you're really doing it on two levels. You're doing it on the level of um, you know providing providing a counter voice uh, to, uh, that is against the uh, just the the sort of boring, earnest arrogance of you know your mainstream journalists or the we work guy who says that his company doesn't matter that his company loses two billion dollars a year because its main valuation is based on vibes it's i think on the one sense there is yeah there you only get so far you can only say that this is um this is malicious and moronic so many times before everyone's like yep i could have called that one really the ceo of we work is malicious and moronic shocking astonishing new information for me um but that's it less becomes about the new information and i think more becomes reassuring to people i think it's a very emotionally satisfying when when you know that these things are insane to hear to hear that played back to you because then you know that you're not crazy do you ever feel sometimes like uh, you're going to become sort of like john stewart where you're just like we're just a show you know, like he would say that constantly when people asked him why he wasn't more of a activist. And I, you do hear that from some people now who've started to become semi-famous. Like we're, we're just entertainment. Do you, at, for Trash Future or Commie Book Club, do you see yourself as part of a larger project? Um, I think I see the two as doing different things. Uh, Trash Future is just entertainment. Um, I think it's entertainment that, when it's listened to by someone who's angry and doesn't know why can get, can point them something to to they can direct those feelings at you know like if you're if you know that if you're if you feel like it's just written in stone that every year as a worker your rights are going to be a little more eroded and that for some reason every time there's some big new invention it seems to benefit like five people and that it somehow seems to fuck with you more and more and more insidiously. If you need that, if you'd have no class consciousness yet, it can be a way that you get class consciousness instead of being lectured to by being like joked around with. I think that is one function it does. Like these shows that say they're just entertainment do serve. Um, 
But once that happens, then yeah, it's just a thing that is creating a. It's just a a, a media that's creating an in group because like that's the other thing they do. It, there is it is a requirement that like there is a or at least as long as there is a media that will be interpreting and 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 discussing the um and filtering the events of the day that you might want to understand. It's going to be important to have some kind of left wing version of that. And I guess that it just so happens that a lot of those infrastructures for that media happen to be comedy podcasts. However, unreasonably silly that may be. Um, comedy Book Club, I see, is doing a different thing entirely, which is what I like to do with Comedy Book Club is I like to take a concept that's being written about in a way that wouldn't be understandable to most people just because that's how academics write. Um, and then try to make it as clear as I and applicable and personal as I possibly can. And I think that actually is more than just entertainment. I think that's that is or at least what I'm trying to do is give people these sets of organizing concepts so that they can then interpret un and understand what's going on around them um, in a way that they would be enabled to do if a lot of the academic left wasn't so sort of just talking to itself in its own language. I see it as a dual purpose. I wrote down Peter Fleming as you were saying that, because that interview, you did a masterful job in in talking to him, but I think also showing a lot of people like, uh, like uh, me that, number one, you shouldn't be intimidated of academics, and number two, well, two, three things, I guess, the audience not being intimidated, the academic sort of not being intimidated of coming out of that environment and just talking to someone in a level where there's shits and fucks and talking like two guys at a pub and then sort of also encouraging more people to interact with these ideas. I mean, that podcast episode gave me a lot of courage to start reaching out to people like Samuel Moyne and Martin Hagland and Raj Patel, who I, you know, I went to a terrible school uh, and I barely graduated, but it that really gave me the courage to start reaching out to people and just saying, hey, you know, I really loved your book. Can we talk? Um, it is that sort of building up of courage, something that you've started to see more of, of like, people who come from more working class or uh, less ivory tower backgrounds trying to interact in a more positive humanistic way with their Oxbridge counterparts or Cambridge counterparts to make Milo happy. That's a huge part of what I wanted it to do, which is like these concepts are like when you take them out of the context of their books or whatever, these concepts are very useful and actually like Way, very intuitive you know it's that and then once you get those then and once those are sort of just just processed a little bit then without all of the other academic scaffolding around you you can understand and use them and play with them and use them in your own life and the thing about like not being intimidated of talking to academics at some point you just get this realization that everyone loves to talk and no one and everyone loves to talk about themselves and their ideas and if you say to someone, do you want to do that? Do you want to talk about yourself and your ideas? Then they generally will. And if you're just like basically nice to them and, and interested and engaged um, and like you can show that even if you, it doesn't like I don't I don't understand everything that he said, but I was sort of honest about it. Um, and the interaction just was, I think, one that I still think of as very positive and I still think of today, actually. Well, yeah, I mean, um, I had the same feeling with, uh, well, I mean, in that episode itself, um, there's like a point where you bring up a point and he's like, yeah, that's a good point. And I, it's very, it sounds very small, but for people who've never been in the room with these like great theorists, not in the sense of great as I'm just saying that as an adjective, but great in the sense of that is their uh, position or how they're viewed within the academy. It's extremely intimidating just to, to disagree, you know, when you're talking to a quote unquote expert. And uh, in that exchange with Peter, it was either you brought up cargo cults, which I think 
he had not heard that term before and found it genuinely interesting. And you also talked about uh, your own concepts of sort of the psycho nanny state. And I, I just thought that was so valuable to like realize that knowledge wasn't just uh, wasn't immutable based on your status or based on people saying you were the expert that you could talk to the Oracle and tell her she was, you know, wrong or that you had a different opinion. I, I just, I really like those little exchanges that you've had in some of your interviews and some of your interrogations of these texts. That also kind of dovetails with, with, with Fisher quite nicely though, where we start thinking about like the, that our, 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 a lot of our reverence for, um, a lot of our reverence for these people comes from almost a, a short a shorthand view of their um, you know, their qualifications or their context or their background or whatever that ends up sort of crushing your own confidence essentially. I mean, this is an, it's an oversimplification of Fisher, but I think it's a it's a it's a it's a useful way to think about getting out of these um, modes where you have automatic deference for people who have ticked off a lot of boxes to be, um, you know, somehow in a higher status. I wish people weren't as focused as like, uh, we're more comfortable admitting a lot of times they don't know what the fuck they're doing and that they want to explore these ideas. They don't want to just have their idea dominate the one they're trying to interrogate, that it's about sort of building a more communal network of ideas. Well, I think that it's important also to let, like draw the distinction between people who are so, so someone like Ben Shapiro, for example, I don't think he has ideas. What Ben Shapiro has is he has uh, arrogance, self-assurance, and also he has the presumption of cleverness on his side. God knows how uh, by a, a very large slice of the population. And so I think there is there is a role for a dunking. As we as we might say, and that is and that is un, and that is to to show that the emperor has no clothes in this sense. So should we dunk on ideas that we disagree with but don't understand? No. But is it is there a valuable is there a valuable effect of systematically showing that someone like Ben Shapiro, who's like main whose main intellectual contribution to the world has been to say that like Palestinians actually love living in open sewage or whatever? It, it's good to show that he that this person whose whole thing is being a uh, a, me, a a crazy rational mega genius who is a who's above mere politics who is um you know who, who is to be looked at as an authority is to show that they're fundamentally unserious. Like, I think there actually is valuable to that is value to that. The question is where do you aim that particular tendency because. You shouldn't engage with every, like I said, you shouldn't engage with every idea you don't understand or don't agree with in a confrontational way. But you also have to understand that we are in a confrontation because there are forces that want to make sure that, like, in America, that something like Medicare for all is not taken seriously as an idea. And we have to show that the people saying that are unserious people. Do you ever feel a, a sort of an Althusserian tension of, of ideological state apparatus or like Lacanian notions of like that by naming the Jabberwock, he appears like that by always interrogating these ideas we know are very stupid and bigoted and uh, without merit, that it creates sort of a, a false enemy as opposed to what our real project needs to be of like, Things like like Joshua Clover outlines for like the Green New Deal of like, we really don't know what the future is going to be. And it's much easier to dunk on like Ben Shapiro than say, like something like John McDonnell is trying to do. We have to do both. We have a positive project mm. that we're trying to create. And there are mm. a lot of people who are trying to stop us from doing our pos our project. And so we with one hand, we have to build. And with the other hand, we have to show that a, what these other guys are building isn't anything, and B, stop them from tearing it down. Yeah, I, I don't feel that way in the U.S. I feel like we're just relying on, like, um, people in power to lead us as opposed to taking power for ourselves or demanding that our voice be the one that they follow. Like, I think it's the U.K. has been much more healthy in things like Extinction Rebellion and 
it feels much more accessible, like that you could get like George Monbiot on the phone or that he goes to protests and is like happy to talk to people um, as opposed to the U.S. where it feels like we're still dunking. Well, it's because with in the U.S., when you have absolutely no power, um, then that's most of what you can do. Uh, I think one of the like the the the. the fact is like in in the uk we didn't our left tradition was never like obliterated like it was in the u.s you know um like we we have a labor party even though it like, like the left of the labor party was in the woods for a while like it was it never went anywhere uh we have a continuity trade union movement again even if its power was broken like we still like have mass me- these mass membership unions um we still have a we we the our left got pushed down to like five percent of what it used to be in the eighties and nineties and early two thousands yeah but your left went down to like point five percent of what it used to be nothing you know there it was you were the land of there is no alternative um and so uh, yeah I think building back from nothing you it's much easier to um to look at the at the infrastructures that are already there and point out why they're yeah. wrong. Whereas we have the beginnings of something else kind of already. If you had to explain to like a liberal mom, a liberal wine mom, could you break down who is the manager, who is the person requesting the manager, and then what is your critique of the situation of the current managerial style of politics that we have? Sure. So the um, the Can I Speak to Your Manager article um, was born out of the fact that I was Looking at year after year of um, stop Brexit protests that were happening in the United Kingdom. Um, and every single one was basically it was neither the left nor the nor the right or not self-identified as right. It was basically liberals, people who see themselves as apolitical. And the whole the whole what I noticed they were doing was they without building an alternative institution, without campaigning, without trying to make the point of um any kind of political point, they were just demanding that Article 50, which is basically Bre- the, the legal underpinning of Brexit, be revoked. They're like, we demand the rev- revocation of Article 50. And um, fine, you know, that's, that's one kind of protest, but that seemed to be the only kind of political organizing they were capable of doing. And I was thinking, okay, well, why is that? What's, what, psych- what psychology is going on here? And I was thinking that really the best way to understand that is that this is a very you might say that this is a very middle class group of people um, who are tend to be sort of older, uh, who are been driven insane by Brexit because it was the first political th- it was the first thing politically that wasn't just what they wanted. Every single thing had been what they wanted forever um, until now. And you know I'm I'm no I'm no lever, but I sort of. I think I, I like to think I have a more detailed understanding of why it happened than they do. Um, more empathetic understanding, hopefully. Um, but regardless, and, and their their petitions were quite a bit like, oh, so I'm quite almost a bit like someone in a restaurant saying, excuse me, I'm actually not satisfied. Because they, there was this expectation that when these people, these the real constituency of politics, the urban middle class liberal, says that they're not satisfied, then that's wrong. And and there must and the government must then step in to say, oh, I'm sorry, we'll change, we'll change your soup or whatever right away. Because that it, it was the politics of a haughty demand that is expected to be fulfilled, that's being made by people who have no power to do it themselves. It's the demand of an arrogant child, essentially. I was talking to you on Twitter about Ishe Landa. His position on fascism, grossly oversimplified, is that when. Uh, there's an inherent tension within liberalism between political liberalism and economic liberalism that when you give people the the right to sort of demand their political freedom, it is a paradox that cannot hold that you don't also give them their economic freedom. So fascism sort of comes in to push back the masses and save liberalism from itself is, is very broadly his position. And I'm wondering in this case, if we were to extend the manager article further and, and be a bit more dark and spooky, is, is that sort of a, a tension that you're a bit nervous about uh, for liberalism in the UK or liberalism broadly, this idea of the manager, the sovereign, 
or sort of a more fascist political uh, sort of state or government imposing what the uh, those who have capital want over the popular wish. Yeah, I mean, it, it is something I'm I am I am quite nervous about. Uh, I I think also that there is um, we're, there, the UK is sort of. It's very good at making people who don't have a capital identify with people who do. Um, like we've done your sort of nation of temporarily embarrassed millionaires thing, um, sort of in a more extreme way. In that everyone is that. Um, I, I see like I, the articles written about how aspiration is a working class value, where what they mean is. Everyone who was working class in the 19- whose parents were working class in the 1970s is working class forever, even if they own four homes. Um, and that every work it's insulting to say that a working class person doesn't own four homes because you're talking down their ability to own four homes. So our class our class consciousness is incredibly fucked up uh, in this country. And that what it means is it's very easy to to resort to common sense, quote unquote. Um, to impose sort of whatever political project you want, so long as A, it's what proper working class people would want, but B, that those proper working class people all got incredibly rich in the 1970s. So basically, it's just this, it's, it's this, it's this series of overlapping ideologies that are just make for like a monstrous social conservatism um, that is very, and, and that we sort of have have no problem demanding. So in this sense, actually, the the speakers to the manager that I was talking about in the article are people who perceive themselves to be apolitical, who just believe that society exists largely to cater to them because they're the because they're 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 there between the workers who have like coal dust smear on their face and the um the billionaires cruising around them um, Mayfair in um in Rolls Royces. You know, those are the odd people. We're the normal ones. It's this sense of like a pervasive extreme normalcy that I found so un- unusual. But the potential for fascism, I think, comes from a, a, a slightly different crew, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah, the, the manager is very spooky, <laughs> as is the worshipping of Hamilton <laughs> or, or even like the tension... Um, in the U.S. where we're really idealizing these, the, we have a young group of sort of, we w- I think that it's fair to call them liberal um, Congress uh, people who've come into office, uh, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And uh, I was, when you talk to people from the 60s, they're like, it's really weird that you guys are cheering on government. Like, you're the ones supposed to be basically saying this is all bullshit we're the ones who should be running the show. It's like uh, worshiping the manager in some ways. Like it's it's great that they're more progressive and nicer, and and that people like that have a more a less problematic view of how government should work for its constituents. But they should still be treated, in, in my opinion, with extreme hostility if they don't do what we want. And it's our responsibility to build up uh, power that can make them do what we want. Yeah, well, it means that it, it means turning them from the, if you like, the manager owner um, to the actual, actual, well, if you're going to go in the representative democracy direction, which some people do, um, then, you know, it, it, it involves, right now, the relationship between the, man, the so-called manager and the customers, if you like, is based on the manager and the customers more or less agreeing on most things. And so the fact that the customers have no power um, never really was important before. They just, I would ask the manager to do stuff and that would be either sort of, it would just be fine or it would be uh, in line with what the manager wanted. Um, and then that would be more or less okay. It never really came into conflict uh, before. And so the idea is, and then the, the, what we always also forget is that in every restaurant, there also is a group of people who are working, you know, and the um, and one other point of management is to make sure that the that the diners and the workers, the diet that aren't the workers never sort of, you know, let's say, sit down and eat with the diners um, and that um, 
and 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 that that's where the that's where the power of the manager is sort of felt brutally all the time and has been forever. So I mean, the question is, if you're a diner, are you gonna cross over to the kitchen and then put your stand yourself against the manager, or are you gonna ask the manager to be nicer to the staff? You know, I mean, it's a rest it's a it's a restaurant metaphor that you can. I think we've stretched more or less to its limits, um, but it's one that I found useful to describe the, um, if you like, the the shock um, that the so-called apolitical class felt uh, at having to deal with their failure to uh, their failure to make Brexit go the way they wanted it to go. Well, I think on a meta level, it's brilliant, too, because most of those people complaining are the managers. It's very much a metaphor that works in our age of neoliberalism, where before there was no fucking manager. There was no middleman. Capital had not uh, inserted itself into so many aspects of our lives. You didn't have to talk to a manager. You There was a much larger concept of mass politics that encompassed much larger socioeconomic spectrums. But now, like those people who are complaining to the manager are the managers themselves. It's a very wonderful, slick metaphor um, that I hope gets you a lot of girls or boys. Uh, I, I just I just have the one. So like, I think the other thing is that like it's the, the point of neoliberal politics is that it was supposed to be this thing that worked um, without anyone needing to ever be political. That was the whole idea behind a neoliberal state was that it was like, well, we're just going to create the architect. We're going to create an architecture with within which things will just work, and we're going to be tinkering and improving them to make sure that these incentives that we assume drive human behavior can then go move at their full power. You know, so we assume that, and this is why, like, it's, this is always always helpful to point out is that the ideology behind privatization is that, um, you know, that the uh, the the private sector will be able to handle. Um, you know, um, uh, running the running of any enterprise better because they want to make money. They're not just in it doing their jobs, et cetera, et cetera. But you know who Brit- you know who Britain sold all of its railways to? Do you know who now owns Britain's privatized railways? Oh. France, Germany, Spain, um, the sovereign wealth funds, the, 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 the different sovereign wealth funds or different um, state investment banks of different European countries own all of our railways. So they are owned by the public sector, just not ours. And so, you know, that the whole... The whole sort of central organizing principle of neoliberalism being about we have to unleash the incentives of the market just means really that we are afraid of popular control. So when you notice that, well, it's what's the difference between um, the, a, fr- a private company that's owned by the French government owning our railways versus a public company owned by our government owning our railways, it's that we're trying to take these things from pro- from popular control to discipline workers. So. Because like when when things are more expensive, when you can't move around as much, when you depend on your boss for healthcare, when you have, when your benefits are residualized, et cetera, et cetera, then you're going to be more dependent on your boss. And so, it it, it it's one of these things where it when you realize that we've privatized our railways to other countries, then it becomes quite nakedly just an anti-working class, anti almost everyone really uh, ideology, as opposed to um, anything to do with this image of it being an apolitical, slick, efficient machine. So Adorno, for me, is a really complicated figure, and I wanted to chat with you about him very briefly to end our conversation, simply because i he's such a perfect figure for a lot of the tensions we've been discussing. He was a, 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 you know, a monumental figure on the left, but at the same time inspired huge amounts of... Uh, uh, what's the word, contempt, from many different people, ranging from Bertolt Brecht to Hannah Arendt, who I like is on record as just like writing, like just hate letters about Adorno. Um, there's the a fascinating section in, in a book that I recommend to everyone of the Grand Hotel Abyss, where Adorno is teaching in the States during 68, 69, and his students storm the classroom and they're like, you know, Dr. Adorno, come with us. Like we're we're protesting. We're trying to trade power. We're we're trying to make this a more, um, a more representative or powerless sort of structure. Our university and you know attack the U.S. political structures. And Adorno is furious. I always remember this passage in the book. He's furious that these 
kids have dared to interrupt his lecture. Um, and his writing, you know, while brilliant, is bizarre in his sort of um, yeah, snobbishness. I think you talk about uh, in your most recent Kami book club, where there is a snobbishness to Adorno, uh, you know, be it his just sort of totalizing pessimism of mass culture, or, you know, his being incorrect about things like jazz, perhaps because of, um, you know, biases that he had. So this is not so much about his text uh, as it is your personal relationship. Why for you, who, you know, someone who inhabits both these worlds of the popular left, but, you know, you can diss theory with the best of them and do, you know, mixtapes on the Frankfurt School if such a style of rap exists. Why, why is Adorno this sort of um, really important figure to you that it constantly comes up in some of your, your recordings and some of your, uh, your own writing and, some, and your life? For me, like Adorno has always been a figure that represents, I think, maybe even an internal tension that I feel, um, sort of dealing with, sort of dealing with my my own um, tendency to sometimes do those same things, to be sort of contemptuous of, of well, not jazz because I, I like jazz, but sort of to my sort of open <laughs> open contempt of the like you know the Avengers movies or whatever. Um, I mean. I sort of I agree with Adorno on the one hand, but then I have to ask myself, well, but on the but on the other hand, Adorno felt this same motivation uh, that led him to yeah be sort of he because just for anyone who listening to this who's not fully aware, he hated jazz because um, he believed that there was there was that that music reached its zenith in um, that music could sort of be more perfected as it was to be the, the sort of new forms of, of symphonic and classical music were to be, were to be created. Um, and that there, that, that, that this kind of rarefied music was, was the proper thing because he was, he was as at, at base, he was a music, he was a member of the Frankfurt school, but his thing was music. Um, and I, on the one hand, I find him so compelling because I think his writing in the dialectic of enlightenment is exactly in, on the one sense, a correct diagnosis of how capital drains culture of its expressive value, um, and the the turning of culture into a commodity is, is is this is a process that he captures very well, and is one that I sort of bemoan on a daily basis because unfortunately a lot of stuff sucks now, and that's more or less why. Um, and it's not even that it was necessarily better earlier; it's just that the process of making it suck has accelerated, as like media companies mm. buy one another. I often say that, like, when the area when the era of media consolidation is over, there's going to be one movie a year. It's going to be seven days long, and you're going to see Homer Simpson meet Darth Vader. I mean, that's the um, that's that's sort of where we're going, and it's unfortunate. And the dialectic of enlightenment is, you know, it shows why. It shows that these ways of of um, I mean, it shows a lot of things, but I'll, I'll focus on this. Um, and then the on the other hand, you have to wonder like how much of that is, you know, just snobbishness and the key to using adorno i think is to understand is to try and get beyond his snobbishness and to understand that he didn't hate jazz he did like that jazz was something that was um a popular working class form of music uh, a popular black working class form of music that became popular because i think it it, ex it expressed a, some d fundamental desire for freedom um and it just wasn't freedom as adorno would have construed it himself i mean that was his problem so i think th what adorno tells us what adorno tells me is that you know it's that um it's almost it's a, it's a little bit like that line from the big lebowski you're not wrong walter you're just an asshole is how do you be a cultural critic without being an asshole? You know, how how do you do that? Isn't the flip side to that, and uh, this is just a natural lead but isn't the flip side to that Fisher who strove his whole life to make sure his ideas were accessible and to interrogate, I think, in a much more honest way with an open heart, some of these mass... I, that doesn't make any sense to me, though. Like, Adorno establishes these hegemons and then Fisher is willing to dive in and, and like a 
treasure hunter. It was is Fisher in, uh, at odds with Adorno then in that case? That's dialectics, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's exact. You can see the relationship between Fisher and Adorno as entirely dialectic. Adorno is like Fisher is Adorno with a project. Basically, Adorno was characterized by how sad he was. He was he was a very mm-hmm. sad person. He saw this the world as he imagined um, slipping away. I mean, Fisher is doing this the same thing with, with with hauntology, but it's not the world as he wanted it slipping away. It's the world as it could have been slipping away. It's um, the it's the the whole idea of that that there is a a radical potential to culture and that you or I or whatever theorist might not see it. But the point is to keep the way clear for it and to understand like, you know, where, where it could, where it could possibly go, how it could work and what it would look like. And I mean, that's what Fisher a lot of times talked about was that we don't know what we're doing for, you know, for now our desire is nameless. Um, but we, we know what it will feel like. Um, and I think Fish, I think Adorno would have been unwilling to do something that he saw as that woolly, but I think Fisher understood that there was a lot of ambiguity in creating the future. I mean, that tension is of uh, uh, that dialectical tension is so clear to me, and like the students, hairy, fucking on drugs, you know, coming in, you know, scattershot in terms of their ideas and their potentiality of the future they can build. But knowing that there is a future to be built that's different than the one that currently exists and Adorno rejecting it because it's not this ornate, you know, well-sculpted temple of uh, an ideology that he spent his life building. Um, And and I guess to close then, the essay that I I don't hear talked about um, is Acid Communism. That essay is... is, uh, you know, connects to Marcuse and I'm just wondering, is is it something that you read, it can come across as just incredibly naive and incredibly hopeful uh, when we're facing these problems, but do you see any window in our current era of politics and environmental crises and you know, neoliberal capitalism running amok uh, with, you know, positive vibes. Do you see any hope for this sort of, this this penultimate uh, idea of, of, of fissures of, of uh, that we can build this sort of all-encompassing future of our desires and that if we only listen to the temptations with a little bit more attentiveness, it's, it's there for the taking? Well, I think one of the, one of, one of the things that Fisher is great about is um, talking about how there actually is no desire for capitalism, um, and that I think a lot of what we, a lot of the where the hope comes from is desire, and it's about not shutting down our. I think that where where my hope comes from, I guess, making it slightly personal, is in people learning to not shut down their desires and negotiate themselves into a position of compromise before they even start. Um, and that, that takes, and if you are writing in like, I don't know, like he wasn't writing it pre 2015, it was post 2015, but like, if you're still writing in this era, even now it voicing your full desire is crazy. It is almost, you know, it's, it's, it's almost hedonic to say exactly what you want without compromise. Um, and that it is it is that pleasure that we have to regain uh and it's that and it's it is the hedonic is the hedonic feeling of of making an a full-throated demand with the expectation that it will be fulfilled by you and the people you work with that's going to be the thing that i mean what else is there it's the thing that we have it's not i don't know if it's the best or worst thing that we have it's just the thing that we have is the fact that we do are doing what people actually want. We are giving people what they actually want. We're the ones who are not asking them to compromise. And for you in your own life, is there a space that you are starting to experience that? Like, uh, is there a space of desire or camaraderie or, or joy that you're starting to see exist for 
people our age or for uh, projects the left is currently involved with? I have some vague ideas, but I almost don't want I, it. It's so flimsy that I almost don't want to say it because it would seem almost like a curse. Um, but I think that there is there has built up on the UK left, especially even through like local action, um, local conferences like, you know, like local versions of the world transformed or whatever people working out exactly what their desires are and how to go about fulfilling them. The fact, one of the facts that's given me hope, I guess, is that it's gone from being something very abstract um, to being something quite immediate and material with a series of defined steps we can take to actually make our lives not suck. The fact that doesn't, that sort of keeps me from being too happy about it is that more or less every force from the peddlers of common sense to the keepers of law and order to the owners of the distribution networks that we get all our food from etc etc are arranged four square against it at least we know what the steps are yeah that's a that's a good place to end i'm really fascinated with um some of the ideas that we were raising at the back end of um you know these these wonkish things are important the program building is important but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we want to create these sort of hedonic spaces of joy and love. And um, uh, out here in Asia, I guess the only counterpart would be the revolutions that uh, not revolutions, but huge protests that have happened recently in Hong Kong and uh, Taiwan. They're, Taiwan just became the first nation to legalize gay marriage. It is amazing to see these huge spaces where people share a desire and they those desires are all different but they know that the world can be different than what it is and um hopefully for some of these voices that are um coming to be more well known like yours uh novara we can talk more openly about you know what we desire and these sort of silly sounding things like joy and camaraderie and um love in a way that helps us build solidarity for the future that we want. Absolutely. I think so long as we can avoid be getting into that whole love wins thing and just think that's enough. Russell Brand will come back to us one day, I think. I don't know where he is. He's in a, another universe right now. But, I mean, you can see where that leads if you don't have principles. Um, but there's, there is uh, despair all over but there's there's joy and i i really enjoyed this conversation today um and i think it'll be something that the people who listen get a kick out of hell yeah man it was great to talk to you later